Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. At the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. We're getting witchy next week. Join the sleaze. (laughs) We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for almost three years. Yeah. So there is something like 60, 70-plus bonus episodes as well as our bonus transmission series where we're still talking about new release genre films, usually about once a month. So if you haven't made the jump yet, patreon.com slash podcast, I'd recommend doing that. Um, and speaking of which, we did have a lot of people make the jump this week, so I'm going to rip through those as fast as I can here. We have um, Glenn Dixon, uh, DVS, uh, Morgan uh, Geyer, Sean Barrett, uh, Alec Nelson, uh, scrolling up because we're still going here, uh, we have... Um, Aiden Andruchow, who is a longtime patron, he upgraded actually to the $10 a month, so he's going to be joining us for the $10 a month virtual screenings that we do uh, oh, once nice. a month. I haven't still decided on that title yet. Maybe I will, though, by the time you guys are listening to this. But yeah, once a month, Jamie and I, we we react to a movie live with you guys. So if you want to do that, $10 yeah. a month. So thanks to Aiden fun. for doing that. Uh, other people who have signed up, we have John uh, Kiritsis. <sighs> This is the uh, listen to Josh pronounce your name <laughs> wrong opening of every episode. So I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, we have Beefly, uh, Caleb Cunningham, Benjamin Cuthrell, Alex Walsh, Andrew uh, Kriegbaum, Drew Taylor, uh, Nuiho. Uh, that's everyone. Awesome. Amazing. Wow, thanks, guys. We did it. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that was awesome. Lots of new patrons this week, so thanks to you guys for signing up. Hope you guys are enjoying all the bonus content. That's the one plug for the week. The other plug, as always, is uh, Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts, and I, I see the stats, um, I, I know that you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Right now, while listening to this, scroll to the bottom. Give us a good old rating and review down there. Uh, do. It helps us uh, climb the ranks at iTunes and find new listeners. Uh, we had someone give us a, a good old five-star review this week that just said, the boys um so <laughs> damn right thank, very kind th- thank you uh big old uh was it groupie 100 thank you brother <laughs> something like that yeah <laughs> um and uh last uh the, the last plug a new plug uh we have merch now yeah uh, if you guys uh really like the show and you like the uh poster artwork uh, that uh, horror artist Trevor Henderson did for us on the show. It's kind of what appears in your in your feed there. That logo art for us can uh, be put on just about anything, on hoodies, on shirts, on mugs, on masks, whatever. Um, you can find the link to all of the merch in the description of this episode here or on sleezoidspodcast.com. And, whew, okay, whew, these intros, man. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're getting long. Um, welcome back Everyone, as always, I am your host, uh, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, my co-host. Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Yeah, I think uh, two weeks ago would have been the last time you guys, free listeners, would have heard from us, and uh, we would have wrapped up uh, 
2020 by talking about the best genre movies uh, of the year. Uh, it was kind of a weird year for everyone, and, <laughs> Very, uh, especially yes. the film industry. But uh, there were new release movies that were coming out, and some of them were genre movies, and some of them were very good. And Jamie and I got to count down both of our uh, top tens. We had a lot of great feedback, and I, I saw a lot of people who are uh, in the Discord and that we we follow on Letterboxd watch listing some of the stuff that we were talking about. So that was pretty cool to see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you haven't heard that episode, that was the free episode uh, for everyone two weeks ago. And then uh, last week over on uh, the the Patreon, we talked about John Le Carre, who recently uh, passed away, and uh, he was one of the greatest espionage uh, novelists just of all time. A lot of his work has been adapted in some really incredible films, and we talked about um, one of them especially. We talked about The Spy Who Came In From The Cold from 1965 by Martin Ritt. So uh, sad. Which is a- very very bleak uh and brutal depiction of sort of like the the soul crushing mundanity of uh, uh national uh international espionage and then we also talked about the russia house from 1990 which is a little bit of a more uh, romantic <laughs> yeah. version of a john le carre adaptation um but uh sean connery and michelle pfeiffer are both uh, very good in it and it has uh, definitely some interesting ethical and moral questions yeah, raised some, uh some beautiful cinematography as well definitely but yeah moving on oh wait sorry but yeah, that was uh, last week's bonus episode um, for anyone who happened to miss out on that. Patreon.com slash Thesoids podcast if you'd like to hear that one. Uh, but moving on to this week, we have a uh, very special guest joining us. He is uh, an American politics and Middle Eastern ge- geopolitics journalist and writer and the affairs editor at uh, Watchdogs Gazette. And he also happens to be a bit of a film and especially a silent era film uh, enthusiast. So we have joining us um, Seamus Malakafzali. Seamus, how you hey doing? Hey guys. I'm, I'm, I'm doing wonderful. Good. Glad to be on the pod. Yeah, thanks for uh, coming on and for bringing on uh, a, a kind of film we actually have yet to talk about. And it feels yeah. crazy because we're three years into the show and just no one's brought it on and we haven't thought to do it yet. But you have brought with you a uh, silent film double feature going back to the early days before things were even really called horror films. But both of these are now in retrospect deemed horror films. So what is the double feature that you brought with you this week and why did they pair together? Uh, the two films that I brought on are The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and The Hands of Orlock. Um, the former made in 1920 and the latter made in 1924. Um, both of these films are directed by uh, Robert Vine. Um, both of these really engage with German Expressionism, um, abject uh, psychological terror, um, lots of crazy... Um, production design, set design, um, visual effects as well, um, atmospheres of just utter dread. Um, yeah. It's really, really great films that pair very well together, I think. Definitely, definitely. And 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 Cabinet of uh, Dr. Caligari especially, that this is uh, considered sort of a... Um, you know, it, it's one that uh, <laughs> when you first study German expressionism in school, if anyone's ever done anything like that, uh, it's one of the first movies that you will watch and you will talk about. Um, so it's kind of cool to finally right. get around to this on the show. I probably first watched it in like 
2011 or 2012. So I've, I've seen it like three or four times now and it was, uh, cool to bring it on the show because again, this is uh, back before anyone really knew to call something horror, but, uh, yeah. they are absolutely both horror films and have inspired, uh, horror films for 100 years now, which is insane uh, to think about. You guys know what they would uh, call them back in that time? Was it as simple as just like comedy tragedy or just you know like what what do they have genres in a sense uh i i did actually read some reviews of hands of orlock where it was referred to as a thriller believe it or not oh okay very cool which is uh which which was kind of cool yeah uh but yeah that being said i think we are just going to uh jump right into these we are going to start off with the cabinet of dr caligari We are talking about the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the uh, 1920 German silent horror film, exactly 100 years old, uh, which is kind of nuts, uh, directed by uh, Robert Wine or also uh, Robert Wien. I've uh, heard a lot of the G- German critics who I was watching interviews. That's how they pronounced it. Um, oh, okay. But uh, mm-hmm. it is written by uh, Hans uh, Hanowitz, or Hanowitz and Carl Mayer. Um, again, this is considered sort of like one of the essential works of uh, German expressionism, which uh, we've talked about. We covered once on this show because we did uh, Fritz Lang's M, which is uh, a little bit later in the period of expressionism. Expressionism kind of uh, was was more of a 20s. As, I mean, obviously, the, the entire movement carried over and inspired a lot of film just in general. But Fritz Lang's earlier work, I think, is considered more expressionist, things like Destiny and Metropolis than necessarily M is. Um, okay. But we, we had to cover it a little bit because it is just one of the most influential um, not just film movements, but like artistic movements of the early 1900s, including like visual art, like painting and, and theater design and literature, a lot of art forms that, you know, people moved over into film, um, especially after World War One um, in Germany, with left, which left the country very insulated and uh, economically kind of ruined. And they had to kind of start their own film industry. I think we talked about it on the M episode, but like, I believe they went from making something like five films a year to 150 films a year in a number of, in just a couple of years. (laughs) And the filmmakers were given a lot of artistic freedom to experiment and a lot of them were ingesting a lot of the expressionist visual art of the time, which they then took into the design and the production of their, of their films with these very stark style choices using shadows and using uh, very fantastical set design just to psychologically and emotionally um, express, you know, uh, things that the characters are feeling using compositions and mise-en-scene and sets and just 
about everything. And it really got at feelings for a, you know, sort of chaotic, uh, there's a very chaotic form for chaotic times in Germany in particular. And it very much expressed a lot of their, you know, fears and paranoias and fantasies. And uh, Caligari is a very good one to start off with because it is absolutely one of the most insane when it comes to the visual and set design elements for um, this movement. But uh, very broadly, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari stars uh, Werner Kraus, or Kraus as uh, Caligari, and uh, Conrad uh, Veit, or Veit, as a character named Caesar. Um, and uh, these two characters, um, Caligari is kind of a showman uh, at, a, at a local yeah. fair who is unveiling his, oh god, I, I didn't look up actually how to pronounce this, uh, <laughs> Sam, <laughs> Sa- Samnambulus? Is that I, what I, I think, I think so, yeah. It, it, I was surprised that it was it was just as complicated in German as it was in English. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like it's, it's a very bizarre term to use, and not just like sleepwalker, which is what it means. Okay, yes. Right. So, yeah, like literally it's 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 just a man who is considered so deep in sleep that he might as well be dead, but his sort of subconscious is able to be manipulated to have him do physical movements and that's sort of the suggestion. And so it, it has a little bit of a um you know, Dr. Frankenstein and the monster relationship between yeah. Caligari and 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 Caesar. And meanwhile there is a character named uh Francis who has a friend named Alan, who's in a bit of a love triangle with another character named Jane, who happened to attend this fair and see this monster um, awoken as he is about to unleash um, a lot of death upon (laughs) uh, Germany. Um, And... So very broadly, that's kind of like the the story we're going to track here. We're going to get into some of the twists and turns of the story because this does actually, uh, both of these films are actually surprisingly uh, plot heavy um, yeah. when it when it comes to um, getting across some of these some of these character journeys. Um, but the thing that does impress, I think, most about Caligari is just the really really creepy vibe that is given off from you know the strange angles and the twisting architecture and the the sort of like voodoo horror vibe you get yeah. from the story itself very which we dark break piano down. score as well uh which i noticed um and yeah it, it really uh, most of the film has a very dark sense to it when it comes to the musical score you know when they're at the fair they'll have something a little bit more upbeat like at first but then everything goes to hell so uh, right away, we're dealing with like really tense strings and very sad uh, kind of melancholic uh, piano, um, mm. and it's it's very effective. It's really good. Definitely. Yeah, I, I I keep. I mean, you you brought up the set design, but it really it it becomes so much more impressive when I mean, if you've looked back at any of the films that the major films that were released in the nineteen tens, I mean, there isn't any. You don't see films with set design like this. I mean, now. But before then, even with a few horror films, proto-horror films that have been released then, it looks fairly typical. Um, maybe mm-hmm. some Victorian settings, but the Victorian settings look very real. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, in this movie, I mean, uh, the desk clerks have chairs that are higher than their actual desks. Um, none of the walls seem to fit with one another. They slant, they go up. Uh, the houses look like they're cartoons almost, but yeah. they have yeah. doors on them that you can go inside. Um, they yeah, were well, and I, I, I love how the, 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 
Yeah, and the scaling is all like incorrect. Like sometimes the the people, the real people populating it will look like giants in the land or sometimes when you go to an interior like they will look absolutely dwarfed. Um well, right. like you know the set like kind of like looms over them or there'll just be geographic spaces that just don't make any sense like the police station when the dudes are sitting on chairs that are like 12 feet tall. You're like how did they yeah. even get up there? <laughs> or 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 doorways don't even make sense for a person to be able to fit through them or anything like the the entire world is absolutely like tilted and basically yeah, it looks like it's sort melting. of dis yeah it, it, it's disfigured by the sort of like fear and paranoia that the you know the the characters are feeling um and it's worth noting too that both the writers of the film here were um, they they came up for the with the idea for the film by uh, they were both pacifists during um, World War One and both of them actually feigned being insane or like having gone mad to avoid fighting and they were forced mm. to see military psychologists uh, throughout the war. And so when they got back, the title character here is actually based on their experiences, you know, being forced to go to essentially therapy sessions with military psychologists where uh, and, and, and as a result, they've kind of, you know, created this this madman who is not only, you know, wreaking disruptive violence throughout German society. But um, as is later revealed in the film, he's actually a respected sort of institutional figure, a figure of power and, and authority and with control over over others. Um, you know, which is which is sort of realized in you know the exaggerated mind control Frankenstein horror form, um, but then also in sort of like the the character's mind and the expressionist imagery that is you know used to um, depict his mind breaking down. The entire sets also drawn on like canvases that look like you could tear through them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like it looks like the world's gonna fall apart at any second, and like even characters like wear their hats like tilt askew there's like there's like carousels that look like they're they're tilted in a way that makes no sense <laughs> yeah they even put oh, like some yeah, strange yeah. makeup on uh caligari himself to make him look even older and more like a madman because uh later on when we see him in a more normal situation he actually does just kind of look like a a normal older man and i do really like the effects that they that they put on his face and it really matches with kind of what you see on the walls as well when they're like that one shot i think it's actually the poster on a letterbox where he's just going down the, the alleyway and the buildings are also like, they're, they're just very uh, strangely painted to make them kind of look like buildings, but you know that you're like locked inside of a painting mm -hmm. or something like that. Definitely. Yeah. And Def I think, I think the, uh, the makeup is a good segue point um, for uh, Conrad Veidt's character, which is introduced in the first act. Mm. I, I Conrad, Conrad is one of my, favorite actors that I think I've ever seen. He puts, yeah, he we're going to be talking about him in, in, in both films here. Yeah, he's yes, amazing. Yes, yes, wonderfully. Uh, and everything, I mean, the acting alone is, is enough to really sell how absolutely terrifying this man is. But the makeup um, really emphasizes just how gaunt he looks. He looks unwell. He looks like he's on the verge of death constantly. But even though he looks like Theoretically, maybe you could just push him over and he'd shatter. <laughs> just even when, even when he, like, I mean, you, you know the scene I'm talking about where he opens his eyes for the first time mm -hmm. and just brings him in on a close-up. And it's so slow, but I've, I've never seen a scene where someone opens their eyes depicted so horrifyingly 
and yeah. you feel mm-hmm. as if you might like you <laughs> the character might get killed just by like that look that Conrad gives when yeah, he's he, he has very um concentrated facial expressions very mechanical almost like very um I, I guess you would call it kind of like intentionally overacting for what you wouldn't necessarily have to do like you would in the theater where you you know right. you can you can have these really intense stylish close-ups of him but he's still doing these these really huge acting moments and also um not just his face but his body movements he has these very odd you know he he has this you know very lanky form to him but it's still kind of like 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 sharp and angular and 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 yeah, he moves yeah. with a sense of danger to it almost and it, it i i i was told actually while um studying it at the time that the uh he he was actually uh trained in a lot of very specific uh uncommercial dance styles <laughs> in huh. order to do some of the body movements that that he does in this so that his his motions were meant to create this feeling of unreality in the same way that you get you know from seeing you know painting forms of lights and shadows directly onto a set like it doesn't look real um and and his performance is supposed to replicate that in a way to kind of create this sense of not just in the images, but in the the way that the actors move, you get this kind of like fun house uh, sideshow kind of stylization to it, which is notably different than the more realistic performances that are being given by like Francis and Jane and 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 the Allen characters who are yeah. mostly reacting to this horrifying situation. Yeah. Oh, sure. And I mean, even even though there's a lot of, I don't want to say theatricality to a uh, vice performance in this. He does a lot of huge moves and outbursts and all these different things, but there's so much subtlety in his mo- in his um, in his facial movements. Lots mm. of little cues and details um, to make it real. It's not. I mean, a lot of actors from this this very very early period were still had theater training. They knew that they yeah. had to make their facial expressions gigantic so that people could see right. in the back, but you didn't need to do that. Um, not a lot of actors that I've seen, I, maybe in Intolerance, for example, did maybe a couple people get it. But this, I think this is the earliest film that I've seen where everybody is on the same page about what film can do. And oh, definitely. What, what, the, what your face can do. And Conrad, I mean, obviously, at the front of the pack, knows exactly what mix of things to do. And it's, it's really wonderful. Yeah. There's even like I mean the consistency like the the just the realization of what kind of film you're in the consistency of the set designs themselves I think are just incredible to go from you know like that that painting they show of the city and it's got all the kind of melted tilted buildings and then they go into the alleyway where people are walking and it's and it still has that very dreamlike and weird architecture um, and then they have things where they go into like the doctor's office, like we were talking about with the giant t- chairs and all the books everywhere and stuff. It's just, or, or we're ta- or, uh, Dr. Caligari's house, that, that strange, small little tilted thing he has. There's just a, a real consistency to, to everything in this film that really, uh, just kind of expresses the world and sets and sets you in it. It's, it's impressive. I just can't believe it's a hundred years old. It's unbelievable. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, and, and and it's worth noting too that you know in in the structure of the film because the film opens on like you know d- you know uh, Francis and an old man you know sort of like sitting on a bench and the old man's talking about like spirits that have like abandoned him and his fiance Jane approaches him and he tells a story you know about how they got there and so this this is all framed in a sense Someone's of sort of head. character subjectivity yeah um, and and and, and it, it sets it up for you to know that. But you do think that, you know, he is, you know, from what we see in the opening of the scene, he seems like a normal guy. You think that he's just telling an old man a story. Um, The one odd thing you kind of get is when he says that his fiance passes, she seems like she's in this weird kind of trance, like a hypnosis in a way. (laughs) And that's like the one little hint that you get that something's off. But but other than that, yeah, it's it sets it up pretty, pretty normally. Yeah, and, and, and the story that he tells is just of, of of himself and his friend named Alan who attend the fair that Dr. Caligari is showing off his uh, his he's showing off Conrad, uh, this this Caesar, this monster that he has who uh, he awakens from as is sort of quote unquote in the film, his death like trance. And he's obviously got a lot of the makeup that we've been talking about on him and he's given life. He has like these clawed hands, but also he's given this sort of like supernatural mysticism to him where uh, he knows every secret he sees the past and the future like step up and and ask him a question and alan goes up to him and says um how long will i live just a question you probably just never want the answer to you just shouldn't ask (laughs) it in the first place but conrad tells him until the break of dawn which kind of freaks them out a little bit for obvious reasons no um and that kind of sets everything in motion because um, Alan is later found dead that night. There's a couple sequences in between, you know, where we we get to see them sort of walking around uh, around the town at night and sort of like some of these strange feelings that people are, are having and sort of like the commute, the confusion and turmoil that is, you know, just in the locations that these characters are walking through. But yeah. you get um, soon after um alan being killed in one of the creepiest sequences in the film where alan is in this this room that again makes no sort of logistical sense because like the room is so massive and also his bed seems like too big for him <laughs> like it's, it's just weirdly kind of like scaled um and the the reason it's framed to make you know alan look so small and some of the room f- seems so vast is obviously to dwarf him as a character and his powerlessness but then Soon after, the shadows hit the wall, and you see the clawed hands and the shadow, and you see him literally be strangled to death on his a uh, uh, a shadow on the wall, and it is very very creepily and 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 well made. This uh th- these kind of sequences reminded me of now I haven't seen it, but I've just seen tons of clips over the years. Uh, uh, Nosferatu. Um, when mm-hmm. did that come out? Was that a couple years afterwards? Nineteen twenty two. Okay, okay, because it just reminded me of like those, you know, the claws, the shadows on the wall, the kind of the the stalking, that kind of creepiness. Um, and also just the imagery of uh, Conrad in the, the coffin is, is very Dracula-esque as well. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I just well, the Universal Monster movies very famously uh, stole a lot of their stuff that ah. they do in their movies and their but, style from the German Expressionists, for yeah, sure. Yeah, there is even, like, later on, and, and we'll get to the details, but, like, when... Uh, uh, when uh, when he's running away from kind of like the villagers after he's stolen somebody, it, it's very much like Frankenstein again and and all that. So yeah, yeah. I don't think this was the um, I don't think this was the first um, 
horror, not necessarily a horror film, but just a film to do the, the kind of the shadows about to okay. attack. If I remember, um, Jacques, directed by Abel Gantz, which is also one of my favorite films, there's a scene where uh, a woman is attacked by uh, German soldiers, and it never shows actual German soldiers, but it shows their heads appearing on the wall in silhouette, and they have the mm. spiked helmets, so you know, and then they all move to go in, and then that's what it cuts. Um, okay. But that was, I think, a year before this. But it was still very new as a cinematic technique. Definitely. Yeah. A lot of these techniques were being invented by a lot of people during this time period. But this does, for uh, in terms of like sort of like keeping it in line with German Expressionism, this does predate a lot of the films uh, in the German Expressionist movement, like things like Nosferatu or um, The Last Laugh, talking about more Murnau, or even like Paps, like Secret of the Soul. And obviously, we, we uh, already mentioned Lang with destiny and metropolis and, and other things like that and and these films obviously as a collective went on to basically invent what would what we now refer to as horror image making um you know monster movies the surrealist works of the 40s and 60s these people inspired hitchcock and noir and right. anything that is you can probably deem a psychologically subjective character study that scares you <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you can probably trace it back in some way um to the german expressionist and and this film and this is one of the earliest examples so um This film, every time I watch it, I am continually, like, impressed with something new about it. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, And, and, and I, you know, every time I'm watching a film, I'm like, oh, yeah, I've seen that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. There was, yeah, Um, there was a ton of that. Yeah. But, uh, I, the thing that I think I'm the most taken with is, is specifically that that subjectivity that you feel um in this film as he's telling the story because as we sort of like move our way through a little bit further through the film because we're we got to get to the big the big twist moment which i think is just honestly one of my favorite (laughs) twists in movie history they're still using it it's it saved it saved the movie for me i mean it was already great (laughs) but then then it became fantastic like yeah yeah. so good I just find yeah. it incredible that that, and we'll get to it in detail. But the 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 twist itself is still being used a hundred years later, over and over and over again. I mean, just the number yeah. of horror movies that have done that that specific twist is is unreal. So to see it a hundred years ago was very impressive. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, but uh, there, there's a lot of um, after obviously Alan is killed. It is a lot of Francis and Jane kind of, you know, trying to figure out what exactly is going on, who has been killing people. That They're talking about someone who is prowling the night with a some sort of sharp instrument. And uh, the environment itself almost looked like it has, like, knives sticking out of it. It looks like, again, it's going to break down or swallow a character at um, any given second. But Francis, he won't rest until he gets to the bottom of those dreadful deeds, whatever they are. Um, and he, you know, he's, 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 uh, turns into a little bit of procedural as he starts telling people to suspect, uh, Caligari, but Caligari is sort of covering his tracks by having like a dummy version of the monster that sits inside, uh, the little coffin that he's pretending, you know, my monster went back to sleep when I told him to go back to sleep, even though we know that he's out there prowling the night, like when he kidnaps Jane in that really horrifying sequence where he grabs her from her own bed and like drags her through the window and through the streets until the people have to like you know stop him from doing that yeah which is uh jamie's right that is very much they stole that basically right from frankenstein with like the villagers coming for him and and, and stuff like that mm-hmm. um but eventually he traces caligari 
all the way to um, an insane asylum. And you realize that, I mean, the whole movie itself has kind of felt like wandering this like surreal asylum. So it's very fitting (laughs) by the time you get there. (laughs) But he finds out that Caligari is actually the director of the asylum who became obsessed with this old tale of a doctor and his essentially his sleepwalking Frankenstein. And so when someone who, you know, is, is a sleepwalker is admitted to his hospital, he essentially goes mad with the idea of turning him into that monster and turning himself into Caligari and his madness. It's implied has sort of like infected uh, the entire world and sort of in, in the structure of the film, it has merged, um, again, this, this institutional figure, uh, which we have been dealing a lot with because you'll find that Francis spends a lot of time, you know, going to the cops and, 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 and trying to get help from, from them and, you know, trying to, um, you know, uh, overpower this character who he thinks is there, but then he finds out this is one of the most powerful figures in his entire, uh, town. And also that that, you know, uh, that person is a fucking murderous, like, showman. And (laughs) so the line between sort of like an idea of political power and sanity and sort of sadism have basically all been effectively shattered at this moment. And that shot, too, where Cross basically just like sits, like starts sitting up in his chair, looking directly like into the camera, essentially. Oh, yeah. it's 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 horrifying and it happens at the exact moment where you get where you get the plot realization and it's so matched in this image of him just like being like that's right (laughs) 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 Uh, uh, this act is so i mean it it, it's it's this whole movie is great start to finish but like the starly act the end of the act is really just amazing i want to go back to the scene where um, uh, Caesar goes to a kidnap, or, or I guess he means to kill Jane, because I've watched a lot of horror movies. I've watched mm-hmm. a lot of silent movies. I have never seen a scene like 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 an attempted murder scene like that in the film done so perfectly. In a way, the lighting. I mean, the the the. Uh, the way that it's shot is really lost on a lot of prints that I think is on Tubi or Prime because um, it's in black and white. But if you get the right version with the right tinting, it's this icy blue. <laughs> yeah. And you see Vite. I mean, he, he first, he's kind of like dancing around the alleyway to get into the house. But then you see Jane in the foreground and in the background, you see Cesar just creep out it's very slow, and mm-hmm. the and, 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 and the, and the composition is like half the frame is like her giant bed, and the other half is like that really geograph- geographically strange like window that he has come through as he's slowly approaching her. Again, it's just a weird way where it, it's directing your eyes to look at it, but the space itself, again, it just makes so little sense uh, <laughs> yeah. that it, it that it, it feels weird and off even before you have a a creepy figure slowly approaching her. <laughs> God. And and also and also the the shot composition not only about the production design I mean you know obviously dolly shots close ups that had all been uh, pioneered years before but uh, Vine keeps it steady he forces you to watch Vite just very slowly walk up there are no cuts there mm-hmm. are no breaks in time 
You just have to watch and wait for him to finally make his move. And it's just, it's fantastic suspense. I love it a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's great. It's wonderful. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, there's there's a lot of that because if there's one thing I'll say about this film is that, I mean, in, in comparison to, you know, we, we've talked about Lang on the show in, in particular, and, and Lang is someone we've talked about a lot in terms of his, um, um, you know, some, some of his editing patterns and structures. And like this has a very sort of like simple, I mean, some might accuse it of being like a little um, uh, dry or linear in a sense to the way that it moves through its scenes. Um, but there is something that does build to that suspense because it almost doesn't need to be sort of like uh, weirder or more odd in terms of the cutting because what yeah. you're watching is so... <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah. being in the space itself <laughs> is enough. Absolutely. Yeah, just just the yeah. camera firmly planted still in a room that looks like how the rooms look like in this. Yeah, feels exactly. insane. Oh, yeah, just fills you with like dread. Like, what is gonna what is gonna come out of these walls? And of course, yeah. every single time yeah. something horrifying. <laughs> yeah. Well, and 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 not to mention, like it it, it gets uh, crazy too because I mean, as as again, we we move from you know, um, the, the monster sort of like failing to kill, uh, Jane. And I think it's implied that the monster kind of like, he seems to, I don't know if he ran out of battery power or what happens to him, but he, but he, but he kind of collapses and it's, it's sort of implied because Caligari, you know, hasn't been with him taking care of him. And he's basically, you know, has that, that life has ended before that reason. Um, which is kind of actually a weirdly sad moment, even though he's yeah. you know been such a disruptive, violent force. But it, it, it speaks to the inhumanity of, of Caligari, who creates life and then completely abandons it. But when, again, we get to the big asylum, and the asylum, again, it doesn't look like <laughs> what I imagine any normal asylum at the time looked like. And Caligari, uh, you know, re- reveals himself. There's this insane scene where he... Uh, I, I think it's supposed to be a bit of a flashback where we are getting, uh, it's kind of like the one sort of like time jump that we get in the film where it's, it, it's a little bit expository of, of them, you know, reading the doctor's journal about his experience of him slowly losing his mind, thinking that he is now this Dr. Caligari, this, this old, this old sort of mythological tale figure that he's heard about. Mm-hmm. Um, but that scene where he's walking around outside and all he sees is like literally writing starts to appear on the walls and the sets around him saying, you know, you must become Caligari. Yeah. And he might as well have been going like, I am going to become the Dr. Caligari. Yeah. And I mean, I, he literally I, says, I must become Caligari. Yeah, he literally the, original, the original Joker, baby. Those, yeah. Those, uh. those words are what pop up. And it's funny too, because the text looks like it's actually like attacking him at one point or something. Like it's surrounding <laughs> yes. him yeah, and yeah. it's just going nuts. It's great. Yeah. The environment around him is changing. Yeah. Um, which is something that's just, you know, really, really um, in insane. Um, and they, uh, eventually show him, I think Caesar's corpse and, uh, take him away in a, in a straitjacket where he becomes sort of, you know, like a, like an inmate in his own asylum. And, uh, you know, they, they, they start throwing him in like this giant warped looking cell. And you honestly think that that could be the end of the film, that the big oh, yeah. twist was 
you know, that the, the, the sort of like, uh, creepy ass Frankenstein PT Barnum dude ends up being sort of a respected, uh, institutional figure in town. And you're like, that's a twist enough. <laughs> yeah. That's scary in itself. But then it turns out Francis was actually the entire time this story has been from his subjective point of view that he's been telling us. And they told us this up front, so we should have known that it was coming. But um, he is actually a patient um, in the asylum, and Jane and Caesar are actually just fellow patients with him under the real Dr. Caligari, who appears to just be a real, normal uh, psychologist. And the entire film that we've been watching is actually the sort of like fictional adventure story of him being the hero who stopped a crazed murderer when instead it, we've been witnessing the basically the ramblings of a sick man who is shouting at his doctor, you all think uh, I'm insane, but it is he, the director, Caligari, who is insane. Uh, <laughs> so, and <laughs> yeah, and, and then weirdly enough, though, is that they, they don't let you um, sit with that moment um, without a little bit of ambiguity because yep. the last line of the film is actually he thinks I am the mystic Caligari now I know how to cure him and you're sitting there going what does that mean? Yeah, they even have that really ominous kind of like a vignette zoom in on his face and it doesn't yeah. exactly appear innocent I will say that <laughs> no well and, and, and the whole time too I think what's important is that the film has built to this kind of general distrust right, of right. authority exactly. and institutional figures so even though this man does look unwell and kind of insane shouting at the doctors there is something just sort of creepy even when you return to the realism of the real asylum and yep. and you're left with uh feelings of like people having control o over other people and that's something that is scary that is something that is you know um when it comes to and not just francis's character but also the character of caesar who yeah. caligari spends the, the film you know sort of unleashing him as as a killer so this idea of sort of like uh, this vague I idea of mind control and also authority where people have more power than other people, those general feelings have been used to make you kind of afraid for the majority of the runtime. So by the time you hit this end and you're watching what should just be, oh yeah, he's a crazy man and the doctor is trying to take care of him, but you know what can you do? And instead you're left with this feeling of kind of like, the doctor still kind of weirds me out, even though <laughs> yeah. I've left the dream, even though they've shattered the dream. There's just something very off-putting about, you know, someone having that kind of power over someone else. Yeah. Uh, I um, mean, we're all agreed we love this ending. But for me, the re one of the reasons why I, I like it so much is because there are these little moments throughout the movie where it, it doesn't detract from my enjoyment whatsoever, at least in the first viewing. But when he, he discovers the book that explains like exactly how Dr. Caligari yes. came to be, like I yes. thought, oh, that's kind of that's kind of awfully convenient. But okay, it's kind of spooky and all these different things, and um, like how everybody's adjusts the convenient place and all these and all these all these things. But then when it's revealed that it's the insane ramblings of a man, as you said, who thinks that he's a hero, it makes perfect sense. Because if yeah. you were the hero in your own story, why would you not <laughs> make yourself the what? exact center where everything is spelled out for you and you can easily find it? 
And yeah, why, why, why wouldn't the evil different. man leave a diary about how evil he was? <laughs> that's what you read in stories. That's what, that's what you, you think would happen if this were to happen to you. And it's just, ah, it's yeah. fantastic writing. It's great. It was yeah, the and, and, original and, and, Google search scene. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the the thing that I actually do appreciate though cuz that you're right that is like a like a very blatantly sort of like expository moment in a film that otherwise doesn't necessarily feel that way. Um what I do kind of appreciate and this also takes us actually to something that is obviously uh, exclusive to uh silent cinema is is that even the title cards are designed to be like kind of like handwritten yeah. and strange. Oh, yeah. and it's, it's green. Great. Like there's there's like a sickly <laughs> feeling to them as well, for sure. Def- definitely. And I, I kind of got that feeling too when he was like just showing us the the images of him reading the diary, for example. Like even the writing and the the graphic design of what they're still showing you still feels unhinged. It feels like the the, the ramblings of a madman. Yeah. And even just the the way that the the lettering is is like wrong, like it's not the way that like anyone would actually hand write something. Like it's it it matches the kind of like sharp and bizarre kind of like cubist uh, visual <laughs> art kind of thing that they're going for at the same time. So yeah, it never lets you escape that kind of that imagery and feeling. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Uh, but yeah, pivoting, uh, I think, towards uh, the reductive rating round, uh, which is where we, uh, for you, Seamus, we remove all the words and all the nuance and reduce the movie between a number between one and five. But we also make it closing statements and, and any any scenes or notes that you had written down that we, we didn't get a chance to hit to. We also hit them here. Um, but Caligari, it should probably be no surprise. This this one is the, um, the, the five for me. Um, this, I think, is just one of the most important works uh when it comes to essentially establishing you know what would go on to become horror one of you know obviously just uh, a favorite genre of of the sleezoids uh (laughs) boys here um this is one of the most important works for visually establishing a lot of the techniques that would go on to define what horror would be i mean um the the most popular like i think when horror actually became a term that people used it was around the time of universal monsters um to describe sort of like monster movies because the subject matter was was just as horrifying rather than just necessarily the style um but all of those movies directly pulled from this it directly pulled from this and it also directly pulled from other german expressionist movements uh movies at the time but as we've mentioned i think just that the 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 way that the sort of like jagged and bizarre design work that is like chaotic and and unhinged and the the twisting architecture and the sort of like fragmented streets that people walk in the way that it sometimes makes no architectural or geographic sense with the people in it. It, it, it really does reflect the psyche of a, you know, a confused society torn by violent madness. Even the grass sticking out of the ground looks like knives sticking out about to stab someone. Um, and the way that that's that sort of like abstract, strange sort of cubist insanity is is all applied to a you know real psychological experience that you go through with this character, and also you know hitting on themes of sort of like you know institutional power and the idea of you know sort of like the subjectivity of the human mind and how it gets all through all of that you know almost entirely visually is insane. 
Um, and again, the performances and the makeup also feel dreamlike and unreal. Um, I gotta say this, this is just, um, definitely one of my favorite silent era, uh, films. Yeah. Um, yeah, for me right now it's at that like high four, but, uh, I'll be, I'll be revisiting this, I think a lot over, over the years to come. Uh, I absolutely love the imagery here. It, It does feel like the city was kind of designed in a way where it it didn't like they didn't want you to feel comfortable or at home in the city it's just constantly <laughs> changing you know there's there's just never any uh, consistency to it and it just it it adds to that kind of abstract feeling and the subjectivity of the story and uh the perspective mm-hmm. of of uh is it yeah francis but but yeah it's just this this was incredible also love the score it's incredibly dark and sad piano uh, loved the imagery that kind of reminded me of Frankenstein and Dracula, a little bit of Nosferatu as well. Um, and to see like that kind of twist ending that's still being done a hundred years later is just genuinely impressive. Uh, and really says, I think, a lot about <laughs> writers nowadays. Uh, not all, of course, but it, the, the amount of things that I saw uh, in this film that I still see and uh, today, but not done in any different way is is honestly just it's shocking uh yeah you will you will never watch uh, shutter island the same way that's for sure <laughs> right <laughs> yeah absolutely um but yeah this is this is great and i i have to say i just i absolutely love uh, uh conrad is it veet vite uh don't i think it's vite okay Veit. uh because now uh like with hands of orlock which we'll, we're about to talk about he's fantastic but i also watched uh the man who laughs uh, a few months ago and just his, oh like, yeah, that's great. Yeah, his he just has such a like a vulnerability to to the way that he performs, and yeah, like his his lankiness kind of helps with that and all, and and everything. Um, and I just I just wanted to mention him because I think I'll be diving into some of his films, uh, the ones that I haven't seen. I just see that he's actually in Casablanca as well, which is a big blind spot for me. So anyway, uh, yeah, really impressed with this, uh, and I will be watching this probably over and over again, to be honest. So. Yeah, four out of yeah. five for now. His his performance and the di- design on him are, are are especially good. Even though I th- also think that Werner Werner Kra- Kraus, who we didn't get you know to to talk about quite as much, his like he's incredible uh, t- yeah. top hat and glasses and like strangly gray hair. Yeah, and he does a stuff. lot of like they'll 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 do close ups of his face, and he's always kind of like moving his mouth in these weird ways, and and uh, it, it's just he has a very strange presence to him, and it's it's really good, really effective. Um, for me, I mean, I'm going to agree with Josh here. Five out of five. Completely. Um, just, it's so, I mean, everything that needs to be said has been said already about this, but set design is really unmatched. I mean, even to some respects, even today, uh, especially the silent era. Yeah, our, our, our words actually can't even describe it. For anyone who hasn't seen the scene, just look up screenshots of this movie to get an idea of what it's, we're talking about. But, like, words literally strange. can't do it justice. Yeah, like, I'm actually <laughs> wa- looking at one of the screenshots of just the onset where they're in Caligari's house, and it's just three guys and the coffin, and they can barely fit in it because of, like, <laughs> just how small <laughs> it is. It's, it's great. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, just... Impeccable acting from everyone involved. Um, such tight writing, such a defined vision of what you want, like that. What Vine wants the film to be, he got the film to be. It is. Yeah. It, it's truly. 
literally every single thing that I thought that I wasn't going to like about the movie, however few, was immediately um, justified by the end. Just fantastic. Mm-hmm. I, I can't recommend it enough. But make sure, I should mention, make sure that you get the right tinted copy. Because if you watch the black and white copy that is more widely available completely distracts from the film you need to yeah definitely right look tense. up because because the copy you're referring to i think was the 4k restoration that kino lorber did a couple years ago yeah, yeah. so they, they they put out a, a blu-ray of the film that i have and you know people can find probably that copy available to 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 stream somewhere um but that's definitely the copy that you you want to watch because also just the 4k restoration they did of the original negatives which are were mostly preserved somehow um is is very very good like the, the quality on it is 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 fantastic and it, it only lends itself to you to be able to see more of its like sinister like distorted style that it that it has yeah um and right yeah all right well i think that'll wrap it up for the cabinet of dr caligari we are going to be right back and we are going to be talking about the hands of orlock We are back and we are talking about The Hands of Orlock, the 1924 Austrian silent horror film directed once again by Robert Wien and starring uh, once again Conrad uh, Veidt this time. Oh, yeah. Um, alongside uh, some some different performances here um, by Alexandra Sorina and Fritz, Fritz uh, Strassny. Um, but Conrad in this film is playing a world-famous pianist named uh, Paul Orlock, uh, which is where we're going to, you know, that's, that's, he, he has the titular hands. Yes. Um, <laughs> but what happens is that uh, he, he loses those hands in this sort of like freak train accident that takes place. And um, his, his wife um, who realizes that his, his hands obviously being a piano player are, are his living and is their life. He needs to get hand replacement. So he actually gets a, a surgeon to transplant um, new hands for him. But it turns out that those hands might have a, a, a dark past yeah, <laughs> that, uh, that, that that he is horrified to learn about. And uh, a lot of the film ends up being sort of like this uh, another sort of like paranoid um, horror story where you're not entirely sure if he is the one losing his mind thinking about the hands or if the hands are possibly actually possessed taken and, over, uh, taken over his body and, and, and wanting him to kill. <laughs> But uh, right off the jump, uh, the thing that's, I guess, sort of noticeably um, different uh, about this, especially for on, 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 on part of the directing, um, is that this film, in terms of its sort of uh, shooting, uh, it, its sets and its location, locations, is um, more noticeably realistic um, 
Um, yeah. You know, in, in terms of scenes in, in people's houses and in terms of scenes, you know, early on in the film where, you know, we, we do get um, a, a shot of sort of like trains colliding um, and people sort of driving cars through the night. And, and even though, you know, they're still lit in a way, we can, we, you know, some, some harsh lights and, and done with some, you know, some dolly tracking shots of the cars and, and, and things like that. They're still done in a way that's still stylistically uh, creepy, but uh, there are no uh, twisting, strange architectural uh, buildings quite like there are in uh, Caligari. Yeah, and the this. actual surrealism actually makes its way into the realistic um, uh, spaces. And and there are some scenes where they, they do... Um, you know, some, some elements with the sets and with the lighting to, to, to make it feel strange and make it feel creepy. But you do get a sense that something normal, something realistic is being invaded by something supernatural rather than the supernatural uh, being the entire thing that you exist inside of, the entire world being topsy-turvy. Yeah, there's <laughs> a ton of uh, shots of very, very wide, big shots of like the entire room that the actors will be in. And a lot of the time, the room is very large. So you have just kind of the one actor in the very middle of the space uh, doing this kind of like German expressionist acting, like especially Conrad, of course, because once he starts dealing with his hands, he's constantly like looking at them and and uh, w with very frightened facial expressions. And he'll always just be like center in the middle of this giant room, like the most maybe there'll be the piano next to him or something like that. But it does give this this like. I don't know that this overlooming kind of evil that he's dealing with alone, just in this very empty space, and I really like mm -hmm. that. I, I like too the early shots of him actually just playing and the shots of his hands and everything like that. Uh, oh yeah, cross cross cut with the the letter that he sent to his wife uh, while he's traveling and doing his. Um, you know, doing his performances. Mm -hmm. That's all like, my darling, I will be with you. I will run my hands through your hair <laughs> and feel your body tremble with my hands. Oh yeah, baby. That I wonder what's gonna happen romance. to these hands in a couple minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this man, sure. this man loves his freaking hands. <laughs> and uh, something too, like I think when he's first playing the piano, uh, the score is actually quite nice, um, if I remember correctly. But I will say, as this movie goes, it's not like with Caligari, it did have all those very dark and kind of ominous pianos and stuff like that. But with this, I think throughout the entire runtime, it's just constantly tension. Like even when mm -hmm. something kind of romantic is happening, uh, it's undercut by really tense horror strings or, or really dark piano or something like that. And mm -hmm. it's I just found that to be a really effective uh, decision because even when it was trying to kind of evoke like romance or something like that, I was constantly brought back into uh, Orlok's misery uh, with the situation. So, yeah, it was really, really good. I'm, yeah, I'm that was one thing the, I picked uh, the up score on too. That we all got. Um, it, it's it's I'm correct in that it's the one that feel that sounds really almost industrial at certain points. Yeah, correct? yeah, for sure. Yeah, it, it it's I mean it's in in terms of scoring a silent film. I mean it's baffling, but it also I mean yeah, it works incredibly well in hmm. terms of feeling miserable, feeling just. <laughs> Just incomprehensibly awful. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's good, but like you just feel just in pain. <laughs> yeah, to I, it's, it's very strange to try to describe to people. 
I found myself like just just as normal things would happen, like he would just be discovering these these kind of uncomfortable feelings with his hands or or the the odd romance he's he's having. Every single thing felt like it was it was leading to something absolutely more horrifying because it was constantly tension filled. So so even when something was normally something normal was happening on the screen, I felt like in five minutes something even more terrible is going to happen. It just it it, it evokes fear and uh, discomfort and paranoia, and it's yeah it's fantastic. Yeah, and I, I like your point too about sort of like the the intensity of it because I think that that was the thing that makes this um, that that separated this a little bit, you know, in terms of um, the way that um, Vine is like approaching Caligari versus approaching this is that this yeah. this as I mentioned I think in the introduction um, even by 1920s standards this was being written about as like a thriller that mm-hmm. that people were like this is sort of more intensely plotted on like a beat for beat development for development kind of like uh scariness like like a quality to that um it has like even even though again it gets into some psychological sort of like schizophrenic stylization i would say that the writing is just more um you know uh intense as it's hitting its beats as as you are like oh no i have the killer's hands oh no you know is 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 the is the killer really appearing here is he a ghost or is this as we you know get into some later developments in the film it becomes what i think has got to be the earliest example i've seen of like a like a gaslight thriller of like the plotting (laughs) being that a character is actually driving someone insane rather than anything actually supernatural taking place Mm -hmm. Um, which is which is obviously a little bit different because caligari blurs that line so much between you know the real and the supernatural that it's left ambiguous you're just left with those uncomfortable feelings yeah in this we do get a detailed plot account of where these feelings have been coming from um right and how you know how the, the main character has actually been being intentionally driven insane in the plotting um of, also, of the film he also tries to kind of like you know kind of trick you throughout as well by having these these short sequences of like there's one where uh, where Orlok is is in bed and he sees like the the giant floating head of the murderer. Oh, that's fantastic! Then, Such a great scene. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> and then he also sees, I think, his hand come down and like grab him or something. A giant like that. hand comes into the room. Yeah, yep. so that's that, the, like, th- those are like few that. the few expressionist gestures for right. sure. Yeah, very surreal. And uh, th- th- those are moments that definitely lead you to kind of you know think that it- it's going to be supernatural by by the end. Um, but but he does a good job of of still riding that line so that that sequence still makes sense because it could just be you know him going through a lot of uh, mental turmoil. So yeah, the, 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 the way that I would um, the, the way oh, that I would ahead. really describe this this film in in comparison to Caligari, which which is why I like it so much, is that Caligari was more of an abstract kind of nightmare. Yeah, this is a very unfortunately like a real nightmare. Yeah, very a little. living nightmare <laughs> that you just cannot escape. I mean, there's like there's mutilation. There's faces that look familiar but that you can't recognize. That look sinister. Mm-hmm. Um, random spats of anger that you can't explain. Um, feeling like something is about to attack you. Like. It, 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 again, it just feels like something that you could dream just on any night. And but <laughs> unfortunately for Orlock, he can't wake up from it. 
<laughs> yeah, it's it every day. Yeah, him I, well, I mean, when, constantly, when, and it's great. When, <laughs> when the wife is first uh, seeing him after, you know, he's already had his accident. He's the surgeon. She's begged the surgeon to put, you know, to to make sure that he doesn't lose use of of just in general his hands. Yeah, his hands and, are more important than his life. She says, I think at one point. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and and when he first wakes up and he's in bed, which is actually the same bed that later we do get the sort of dream sequence of of the giant head and hands in the, you know, the shadowy imposing compositions coming down and trying to get him. But there's actually a, a more subtle one introduced earlier where he just sees the head of the killer looking through the door. And, right. yeah. and, and the killer, uh, keeps making appearances both, you know, sometimes he's in the background of an image like in that, or sometimes, you know, he shows up and he, he talks to the maid or something like that. And you're, you're led to believe, or the way that he's treated as a figure in the frame, he's kind of treated as sort of like this, this ghostly spirit that is now right. haunting this man because of, you know, because the man has his hands and he's like, you know what? When I was alive, I liked my hands, man. You can't just have them. <laughs> I I used them to do art too. I stabbed the shit out of people. <laughs> Artiste. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, too, the actual uh, stabbings themselves are actually kind of brutal. Like when they go in and they yeah. find his dead dad later in the film, and he just has like the knife sticking out of like his abdomen. Oh yeah, it's actually yeah. like pretty graphic. I also really love the shot. There's a shot where. Uh, uh, Conrad is holding the the knife, and he's. It's almost like he's he's almost becoming one with like the murderer or whatever. He's he's kind of taking it for a spin in a way. And in the middle of this, once again, it's a a giant room, and he's right in the middle of it. And you see the entire room in just this small. Well, Conrad, it just looks comparatively small, and he just kind of walks up slowly closer to the front uh, front of the frame and just does like stabbing motions. And it's just very, yes. uh, it's just, it's just, it's very scary. And it's almost, uh, it's, it's sad in a way too, because I mean, we know that this guy is just like a world renowned pianist and now he's in the middle of a room, just kind of losing his mind, stabbing the air, stabbing the air. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, <No>. you know, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and at that point too, he's like begging the surgeon to like tear his hands off. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> oh my god. And at, at, at one point, he's just sit, standing in the room with him, like literally trying to pull his own hands off. And the doctor <laughs> is like sitting there explaining to him. He's like, "Dude, the hands don't control you. Yeah, man's mind and heart control the body. Like you're just you're you're literally just fucking going insane. Like it's this is your mind. This is not like." You're not being possessed by these hands. And the doctor tells him that like three times in the movie. And uh, the, the imagery, though, is uh, is, is what uh, kind of sells it. It's actually because the imagery is so horrifying, like these, you know, sort of like surreal supernatural sequences where he is just going insane. Um, you do honestly kind of believe him physically that he is, you know, being possessed. Like during that moment where, you know, you see him with his hands just stabbing the air. That is a moment that you're like, he he didn't do that before. So clearly <laughs> right. something is 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 happening here and the imagery is kind of what expresses that to you. And then the film actually you know, the film is telling you the entire time the actual plot of what is taking here place here, which is that he is just going insane. But the imagery does do a good job of selling that insanity as something that could physically be happening to this man. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I, I am, I am wondering, uh, Josh, have you seen uh, mad love? Uh, the movie with no. Peter Lore. Okay. It was, a, it was a remake of this movie that they did in the thirties. 
Um, and I was surprised with, 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 with Peter Lore of with, with like Peter the Lore as um, actor. Uh, yeah, Peter Peter Lore plays the um, uh, the the villain who comes. He plays the uh, the uh, the doctor um, who puts the hands on Orlock. It, it runs oh, a bit differently, so but I'm, I was I was struck by how different the treatment was in between the remakes because in this movie, obviously, it's all about the na- the nature of whether or not these hands are actually murderous or whether or not it's all in Orlock's brain. But in Mad Love. There's a scene where uh, he gets the hands and it comes into his dad's office and Colin Clive, who plays Orlock, is like, my hands, they can stab people now. And he suddenly displays how he's now an expert knife thrower and that he has like, like, no, the hands literally that. are different and they are, they do want to kill in this movie. There's no ambiguity at all. Carl, Carl friend too, who did yeah. um, the universal monsters, the mummy. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. a good one. Interesting. That's hilarious. I'm going to have to check that out now. Yeah, I definitely will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, I'd have to check them out to see which one kind of like works better for me because I did appreciate in this that you are kind of left with again, that, that ambiguity of not 100% knowing the imagery saying one thing and the people in the film saying another, which then gets you, you know, to the actual ending where, where, you know, things are, are, are revealed, which uh, maybe we'll get to after we talk about a couple scenes here. Um, But a lot of this movie is just him experiencing bizarre supernatural nightmare sequences where he thinks that he is losing control of his own mind and body um, to these hands. And again, there's also uh, scenes where the wife is seeing the killer appear as like a ghost or, or an apparition and talking to him. And they also start to introduce a little bit of class elements too, where he realizes that like not being able to like him being driven insane uh, means that he's not really doing performances anymore. means that they're running out of money. So he has to like, the wife has to like go to his dad for money in like this like creepy ass like cathedral house that the dad oh has. god that that's that's one of my I mean I mean I mean two things one it's not just that he's going insane it's also that like he just had a hand transplant like you can't play piano and then he um he goes to write his name with his new hands and he You're finds right. that his handwriting is just like it, it it looks crude it looks just in comparison to the beautiful handwriting we saw at the beginning, like right. yeah, from his you, letter, like yeah, he, this, he doesn't have quite the same skill anymore with these new hands. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a new. You literally had new hands implanted on you. It's going to take some time, but of course, because of all of the mental turmoil, he thinks that he has the killer's handwriting now. Like the, the killer can't play piano, so how can I play piano? But then the second <laughs> thing, I mean, God, that one of my favorite scenes in the film, just because of how the atmosphere is directed because I mean, I keep, I, I hate to keep comparing it to bad love because I, I'm just struck by how different the approaches are, even though they're from the same source material uh, in the, in mad love, the dad is kind of, he scoffs, but he's played like a normal guy in this. I mean, yeah, the dad lives in this giant he's cathedral in the middle of the room. He, he has someone near him, but he just, he just stands stoic. In it, he, he sits stoic in a chair 
it reminded he waits me for of life to come in. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of like that the the king and worm tongue in the Lord of the Rings a little bit. <laughs> just because that guy's <laughs> they, like right they have behind that kind of the chair. Yeah, and he's just I I can't remember if he says anything to him, but yeah, the, the dad has this almost like zombie like presence to him, and then there's this man that's just behind him, uh, shoulder height, and uh, yeah, just it, the imagery reminded me very much of of the Lord of the Rings and worm tongue. <laughs> yeah, and, and and he absolutely hates his son. Yeah, uh, like the like the wife is like begging you know him for financial help, and he and she goes you know he is your flesh and blood. Would you really you know let him be ground into the earth? And and he says yes, I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> He's on and uh, just yeah, complete per- other like he exists just outside the fold of morality. He just seems like he's a figure just built out of evil. It's, it's yeah, yeah and, and, and you, you are kind of left to wonder if, you know, him and the space that he occupies is being distorted by their fears in, in paranoia or if this because it is one of the like more expressionist and unrealistic things that take place um, in in the film, um, like compared to a lot of the scenes building up to that other than the sequences where like the killer is starting to, you know, reveal himself or, or, or haunt them where he's starting to have nightmare sequences. Like there's no performance, I think quite as animated as the father <laughs> in, in, <laughs> in that moment. Um, but it turns out that like shortly after that, I think he goes to talk to his father and his father has been found stabbed to death. And, it, it sort of implies um, that, you know, he might have have killed him because of these feelings of 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 fear and rage that, you know, were brought up in this conversation that maybe he sort of subconsciously channeled that into his own physical actions. And that may, he thinks maybe that, you know, he was the one who who killed his father. And then also, you know, it's killed in the same way that the previous killer who had been executed killed by like, you know, leaving the dagger with like a, a very specific, like X mark on it signed. And, uh, so, you know, <laughs> it has he's, he's like, it has, it has it, the killer's fingerprints on it. And who has yes. Vasur's, um, the serial killer's fingerprints. Now it's Orlock because he literally has those hands. Who else could it be? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so ev- everything is being designed for him to, you know, lose his sense of 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 who he is and 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 what he's capable of doing. And needless to say, he eventually uh, meets up with uh, the Ghost Man, who appears, you know, in the flesh, and uh, asks him for his inheritance money that he's about to receive from, you know, his father who who was was just killed. Um, and I think it's like. Uh, essentially he's saying you know i am the killer and you can see like you know he lifts up like these gold gloves to show that he has like fake hands yeah like iron yeah that the surgeon actually replaced um you know the who they actually executed uh instead with with me so that i could escape and you know for payment for you know gifting orlock his hands he's like you need to give me all of you know this money that you're about to um come into and that the surgeon you know was was involved in all of this and helped him avoid execution um and he's the one who's been framing him by you know using his uh fingerprints and 
essentially uh he ends up like kind of trying to go to the cops and they don't really like they, they don't believe him but then eventually they do <laughs> believe him there's there's some weird sort of like uh, expository plot developments made in the last bit that involves also the maid showing up and revealing the end all truth yeah because they got to explain all the supernatural elements uh, now in yeah. a very realistic way uh, which I will but say, but even like, in the realistic way, it makes no sense. Well, oh yeah, definitely. no, it's insane. Well, that's, yeah. See, that's honestly what made me uh, continue to kind of love this film because I I was hoping for a more like ambiguous kind of supernatural ending in a sense where we don't we still don't quite know or, or something more along that line. But because it goes mm. to this incredibly almost goofy explanation of things and there's so many layers to it i appreciated it and i had a lot of fun with it by the end so it worked for me oh yeah uh, well i mean it it yeah well, i mean i i just i just want to do a brief brief tangent about this for sure. uh robert vine he has i mean i haven't seen uh crime and punishment or his other uh adaptations yet um but what I've noticed is that Vine has this almost severe allergic reaction to um, he obviously he deals with supernatural a ton, but he has a allergic reaction to accepting it as an actual real thing that is concrete yeah. in his films. And it's all about mind uh, over matter. And mm -hmm. I know I, I, I it all kind of came through to me when I um, found out about a film that he made just a year before this called the uh, I and the RI. Uh, the, the film just kind of astounded me with the plot because I've never heard of a film before that presented Judas as the protagonist and the hero <laughs> in a story about Jesus Christ. And the whole thing, the whole thing, and it's, it's this big production. And the whole thing is that, Judas did not, his idea is that Judas did not sell out Jesus because he wanted a few pieces of silver and that he was willing to sell out the son of God because he was so evil. He fell out of favor because he disagreed with Jesus politically and that he disagreed <laughs> with the direction that he was taking as the leader of the rebellion against the Romans. And he connected <laughs> it with a frame story about um, anarchism in Russia versus um, Lenin and <laughs> wow. the communists, and it, it's it's very he he. It, it kind of became clear to me that he is a real materialist. He really does not believe in religion or the supernatural mm -hmm. or anything, and all the horror can come from within. But in the end, everything outside, it's all it's all real. It's all, yeah. it all, all of that terror comes from your mind and it can really overtake you in that way. And I found that really, really fascinating. Oh yeah. That, yeah that's well, I mean, definitely I mean, true. He definitely reads it like that. That's, that's, that was great. Yeah. Well, and you know, the way that in, in, in Orlock, he kind of complicates that by having someone abuse someone else's feelings about believing in supernatural, um, yeah. Because like that's that that's what the eventual killer uh, in this film. It's revealed he's not really the killer, but he's actually just a blackmailer. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he he's set up this giant elaborate ruse uh, where somehow he like pulled the killer's fingerprints by like having the surgeon make <laughs> gloves uh, <laughs> out of his hand. Oh yeah, baby. <laughs> I mean, also, but I mean. I, I, at the time, I think I think hand transplants didn't even exist at this point, um, like actually in the medical field. But also, he wants to claim 
to a Vice character that, oh yeah, I got a head transplant. I'm on yeah, a completely yeah. different body right now. And then Vite, of course, <laughs> he's completely he's sold. Like I believe anything at this point. Like that's terrifying. That's when great. He, yeah, so, sur- so surgical transplants did exist, but they were pretty new. Um and, okay. and people definitely oh, okay. weren't doing them, I think, as far as like I don't know if they were doing full out hands at that point, but like mm. this it was definitely mining like a a real fear and paranoia had about like a like a, a new thing that people were talking about. Yeah. Mm. When, when he mm, okay. when the the two moves that I was just losing myself on is when he unstraps the like iron gloves to reveal that he just has hands underneath and, and, <laughs> and they were just like like metal gloves of some sort and then the best one though is what you were just kind of talking about with the head thing he un he he has this like fake stitching on his neck and he just pull, he pulls it off like ta-da <laughs> like, like yeah. it's this elaborate th- it was oh my god i lost my mind i thought that was the yeah so, so so when the cops come to get him he's like you know actually i'm really just a blackmailer so like that's not as severe of a crime as being a killer yeah. Yeah. And then he points at him and says, he's really the killer because he's got the hands and you found the fingerprints on the knife. Like that's really the guy. So then you need the maid to come in and, you know, like explain that, yeah. you know, the, he actually the got story. the fingerprints by like making gloves out of it and out of the killer and, and things like that. The funniest element of all of this is because we're obviously laughing because it's just so yeah. wild. The, the plot developments are incredibly goofy. <laughs> this all happens in like 20 minutes, maybe, maybe not even. Yeah, and the majority not of the even. film is just this nuts. really dark, like, like just emotional turmoil that this guy's going through. And then all of a sudden, the last 20 minutes is like a big Scooby-Doo episode or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where, they, where, the, where they reveal who was behind it the entire time. And, yeah. and, uh, which is interesting kids. because because I personally haven't seen a Gaslight thriller older than this. So I'm curious if like that's... Yeah. Uh, like if there are other movies that have done that kind of plot point before. But the absolute funniest detail that I read while researching the film is that they actually tried to ban and censor this film. And I think in some places they actually did uh, get that done. Wow. Because the governments and the police thought that it was going to, uh, you know, it was going to make public, you know, the idea of like (laughs) trying to take fingerprints and it was going to give killers like ideas about things that they could do. It was going to be tried it was about deceiving the police and it was highly unsuitable was the words that they used. Oh man, mm. that's hilarious. You're going to teach <laughs> even, even too even, much. Yeah. Even though they eventually took it to like experts who said that, no, no, this is completely. <laughs> There's no way this we are. We are not. Yeah. They, they eventually concluded that, um, everything that is included in the last like five minutes of the movie there is, is pure <laughs> fantasy and insanity. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. But the fact that they were initially worried, that they were initially like, wow, this is going to help killers uh, uh, frame people by using other <laughs> this people's This is really dark. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's amazing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but even even though that that stuff is, um, you know, ultimately uh, kind of kind of the, the expository finale is ultimately kind of silly. Uh, one element that I still think really ends up working about this film and what really took it over the top for me is the last shot of the movie. Cause after oh, that yeah. expository element is like all done and you do realize that, you know, technically, you know, 
his hands are now his and you know uh, everything that has been haunting him has been him sort of um just reacting to someone trying to drive him insane and trying to frame him as a killer um but at the end when he you know leaves with his wife and they've sort of escaped the situation you just get this this really intense uh, close-up shot of him embracing his wife and his hands just all over her face, <laughs> you know, while they're embracing each other. And you are you are left with that impression of, like, you know, earlier in the film, he was stabbing with those hands. Yeah, you with know, maybe he wasn't killing air. anyone, but he... <laughs> But those really were the hands of someone who used them to kill. And he did seem like at, at certain points in the film, like he might have been capable of using them, you know, uh, for for destruction versus art. Right. And so to end, it, it does achieve a tiny bit of ambiguity again by the end of the film when you're just left with all of the ways that hands have been made to feel kind of scary and wrong. Uh, even just the giant hand appearing in his room and trying to grab him. Yeah. Hands have been made a little bit scarier just by the way that he's made the film. So watching what is supposed to be this moment of relief and, and, and love at the end of the film and you're kind of sitting there going like please take those hands yeah. off of her Hope face that doesn't go down from her <laughs> cheeks to her neck there buddy yeah no. <laughs> which is which which is just a really really great ending I, I loved that yeah me too uh, but yeah, maybe uh, once again, pivoting towards uh, the reductive rating round on the the hands of Orlock. Uh, this one got the uh, the solid four um, from from me. I, I I think I I definitely prefer um, uh, just the the overall visual style of Caligari to this. But I think yeah. there's a lot to really like about this. The the overall sort of like again the 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 intensity of the way that the the plot is kind of like drawn out, merged with the uh, psychologically supernatural and sort of schizophrenic horror imagery that he populates that with the combination of those two things, I think do work, um, well in, in tandem and they do, do create a little bit of, of, um, you know, subjectivity, uh, once again with Conrad that, um, I did find myself kind of getting swept up into like when it gets into those sequences where he's having dreams about the killer's face floating around his room and stuff like that. Like, even though by the end of the film, you do find out that it was all, uh, you know, imaginary, you are still left with the idea of what someone's imagination, Mm -hmm. um, you know, can make their body do. Like I, I am struck by the way that that, contrast with the scene that Jamie was talking about early on where he's just standing in a room stabbing the air uh, because he's been inspired to do so by these supernatural sequences and and yeah that that element I I did find um, very creepy um, and it translates all the way into the last shot of the film so yeah. solid four for me yeah uh, solid four for me as well uh, this was it, it, once again even the the kind of craziness that comes with the ending I just really appreciated and still had a lot of fun with. Uh, I think it would have been more, you know, uh, effective and and scary if they they kept some of those supernatural moments uh, happening throughout the film. But once again, had a lot of fun with that ending, so I'm okay with it. Uh, But I really love, especially in the first half of the movie, the the use of of big giant spaces and having Conrad just, you know, dead center in these huge rooms, just kind of alone and then at times like Josh said you know stabbing the air just really going through uh, some some real emotional and mental turmoil um, 
it was it was just very effective to use those spaces uh, in that way. Uh, and once again, the score, the, the, the tensity of the score is, is just unbelievable. It really never lets up, even when there's a moment of uh, kind of, I, I don't want to say relaxation, but like when there's an attempt at romance or something like that, uh, there's still this, this underlying score where you're just like, you feel like something is coming constantly, something bad. Um, and, and, that was, and that was great. I loved that. Uh, so yeah, this was a four out of five. And once again, I mean... Conrad just knocks it out of the park. I love this actor. Uh, I don't know how many films he's done that are like super well known besides like these the the big popular ones. Like, have you guys seen any other uh, Conrad films besides like? I I, uh, I have. Um, okay. Is there another uh, one that would be a... just like you absolutely should see this? Because I really love this actor. Ooh, um, two. I think you've already seen the man who laughs, but yeah, great, um, great. The man who laughs is is one of those essential ones, but a lesser known one that I think everybody should see just for historical significance sake. Um, mm-hmm. He made his major film debut with a film called Different from the Others, which was the okay. world's first pro gay film ever made. Um, oh, cool. He plays a uh, he plays a gay violinist who also displays. Uh, a ton of inner tumult, um, uh, suicidal tendencies, um, really just kind of world weary. And he does it. it, There's only a fragment of it that exists. That's I think about like 50 or so minutes long, but he does a amazing performance that really knocks out of the park. Wow. 1919 Um, as well. That's, that's great. Yeah. It's, it's way old, but, but that's how it used to be for a while. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, he, he he does great performances in pretty much everything, but those are the two, other than these two that I've mentioned, that you should really see if you can. And I think Different Perfect. from the Others is on YouTube right now. Um, but yeah, for me, uh, I would also give this a four out of five, maybe a four and a half out of five, just because the ending, as much as we all laughed about talking about it, how insane and absurd it is, it does take away a bit because it's so expository and all these different things, but it's so rich uh, in subject matter. I mean, obviously, as we talked about, Vite, fantastic, pulls the whole film together just on his performance alone. Um, Just the the visual effects as well, uh, however slight they might be, uh, they really add something to it. the production design, even though it's not as fantastical as Caligari, obviously, uh, it still it, it still provides that that atmosphere of just creepiness and spookiness a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great. It's great. It's wonderful. I, 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 I recommend it a lot. All right. I think that will wrap it up for everything this week. Uh, that was The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari from 1920 uh, and The Hands of Orlock from 1924. Uh, thanks so much, Seamus, for uh, joining us and for bringing these films with you and forcing us to uh, finally go back to the to the silent era. Yeah, um, it was awesome. We, we, we hadn't done it yet. Um, uh, this is the part of the show, Seamus, where if you've got anything to plug, we usually uh, have you do that. Oh, I, I do have something to plug. Um, I, <laughs> this is completely separate from the subject matter that we talked about, um, but if you are interested in Middle East affairs, um, trying to get informed about um, the global south and um, what's happening there. I do have a sub stack that you can subscribe to. 
Um, Malik nice. Afzali at sub, uh, dot substack.com M-A-L-E-K-A-F-Z-A-L-I dot substack.com Five bucks a month, get access to articles about uh, Iranian politics, uh, Gulf Arab affairs, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, crisis in Bolivia, all these different things. Uh, it's all there. Uh, would love if you supported it. Awesome. Hell yeah. Uh, for our listeners, we are going to be back in uh, one week's time. We're uh, continuing, actually, off of um, Seamus's uh, silent film picks. We are going to be talking about uh, what is probably my personal favorite silent era horror film. We're going to be talking about Hexon oh, yeah. um, from 1922. Ooh. Uh, as well as uh, we're going to continue the theme from Haxon, which is um, witchcraft. And we're going to talk about another um, well-known sort of witchcraft film. We're going to be talking about 1960s The City of the Dead um, with uh, Christopher Lee uh, in that one. Oh, yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit of uh, more more silent era horror, and then we're going to merge it with some kind of more uh, hammer horror era um, filmmaking and uh, the city of the dead in particular. It's kind of like if psycho was about witchcraft. It's yeah. Nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Dead on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then uh, the week after we're going to be joined by uh, special guest, Sam Zimmerman, who uh, some of you might know as the director of programming at uh, the streaming service Shudder that focuses all on uh, genre and, and horror films. And we're going to be uh, talking with him about, uh, a film called uh, Let's Scare Jessica to Death. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Which uh, we'll jump into that one when we actually get on the episode because it's a hard one to describe, but I've seen it. It's very good. And then we're also going to be talking about The Legend of Hell House. Oh, cool. Um, which is by uh, John John uh, Hugh or Ho? I can't I can't remember exactly how to say his name, but um, the director of programming at Shutter, Sam Zimmerman, he he knows his horror films, so I'm I'm trusting him. This is going to be a really fun double feature. Yeah, that's awesome. Sounds good. But that's what you guys can expect uh, in 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 two weeks' time. That'll be the uh, the the free episode. But yeah, that being said, I think that wraps it up for everything this week. Thanks so much, guys, for listening, and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy. <laughs>